Tonight, we're going to continue our study through our series of Seeing Jesus from Genesis to Revelation, and we're making great progress, 21 books into the New Testament. We're talking about the letter to first of First Peter. So let's start with a word of prayer, and we'll get right into it. Lord God, we thank you for your word. That's why we're here. We love it. We just yearn to understand it and to know it, and we thank you, Lord, that it is, it is impossible for us to come to the end of our search, for your word is inexhaustible in its wisdom and its guidance and its truth. So Lord, we pray that tonight, not only would we understand the text, Lord, we would receive spiritual food into our hearts and minds that would help us to grow in your grace. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. The letter of 1 Peter um, was written by Peter. Uh, in fact, verse 1, it says, in chapter, it says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, it, actually, what's interesting is that the authorship of 1 Peter and 2 Peter is probably the most disputed of all the writings of the New Testament, or maybe even more so than even many of the Old Testament books. As one commentator noted, he says, the author had to have formal education in rhetoric, philosophy, and an advanced knowledge of the Greek language. And therefore, he said, this, pos this couldn't possibly have been written by Peter. In other words, uh, it was too good a production for Peter to have written, he concluded. But it's interesting that this assumption of Peter being kind of a, um, a dunderhead uh, is really one we often propagate because when we look at Peter and his interaction with Jesus in the Gospels, he seems to be the guy who su suffers perpetually from foot and mouth disease. Uh, I mean, he's the only disciple that Jesus ever called Satan. So, you know, he, he, there's a lot of things to criticize about the guy and the way we can tear him apart. But those assumptions are kind of, I think, uh, misguided. In fact, uh, when we read in Acts 4.13, for example, it says that the pre-high priest and his group looked at the, uh, Peter and John and said they're unschooled, ordinary men. And then it says, and they were astonished and took note that these men had been with Jesus. They take the word unschooled, sometimes translated unlearned, and many people kind of read that as if it's saying that Peter and John were basically not smart guys, not well-educated. But in fact, the word that's used there means without advanced education, uh, not somebody who is unread or illiterate. In fact, we have every reason to believe that Peter would have been fluent in at least three different languages because that was necessary. He would have been taught Hebrew as a child and enough so that he would learn to read the scriptures for himself and in the synagogue. Uh, he would have spoken Greek because that was a language of commerce and he was a businessman. And they were on a border village which basically was next to a whole Greek area where Greek would have been the fluent language spoken all the time in everyday concourse. He would have been certainly fluent in Aramaic, which was more the native everyday language of the Jewish people. So we know that he would have been educated in these regards. And because there was a presence of Romans in the land and the legal language was Latin because of the Roman Empire, he may have also been conversant to some degree in Latin. So uh, we're unique. You know, you can often tell when people are Americans. Someone once said to me overseas, they said, what do you call a person who speaks several languages? And we say they're multilingual. What do you say call a person who speaks two languages? Bilingual. What do you call someone who speaks one language? 
American. So, you know, it's kind of the nature of, of our thinking that these people would have been real limited. But again, I think that's a fallacious assumption that Peter was a man of learning. And certainly at this point in his life, he was a man who had great intellect, not the least of which was helped by the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit in his life. But secondly, we have the idea that he sat down and was unassisted in his efforts. In fact, he says in verse 12 of chapter 5 that he says, with the help of Silas, I have written to you briefly. So that we know this was true in Paul's letter, that he had was referred to as a menusist or basically a scribe, someone who actually takes your, your te- you speak to them and they write it down for you, professional writers. Um, but it's also very likely that these kind of letters had a collaborative dynamic to them. That as they're talking about communicating the issues and the needs and the concerns of these various uh, groups of churches and individuals, there would have been counsel sought and they would have worked on these together as Peter here also acknowledges that Silas, and we can't say much about Silas other than the fact that he was a disciple and a follower, but nonetheless, he did have help in the writing of this to make it a a more effective communication. And then the third thing they say, well, he would have been under arrest at the time in which this letter would have been written. And there's a big assumption made here that because Peter speaks about persecution, that he must be referring to the Neronian persecution, the persecution under Emperor Nero. But in fact, we know that persecution was a constant experience of the early church for reasons that we'll go into a little bit more in a moment. So why do we therefore say that this was written by Peter? Well, first of all, both historical and traditional records have overwhelming support of Peter being the author. I mean, early and universally, this letter was accepted into the early church as as inspired writing, was considered part of the canonical body of New Testament works, and was accepted and noted as being having been written by Peter. But secondly, the testimony of the church fathers. Now, the church fathers refers to that second generation and third generation of church leaders into the the first and our our second and third century of the church history. People like Papias, who died in 135, or Clement of Rome, who died in 101. Uh, Polycarp, who was a disciple of John the Apostle, who died in 156. Irenaeus, who died in 200. Eusebius, who wrote the ecclesiastical history of the church in a about 300, uh, basically wrote an entire compendium on the history of the church up into that time. He, of course, said that this was genuinely the letter of Peter as well as Tertullian, who died in 240. These are the eminent names of the early church fathers. They all quoted from this letter. They all gave attestation to the fact that it was based, it was basically written by Peter. And so that's pretty much been the traditional position of the church. And I think that that has uh, more support to it than later musings by scholars removed by a couple of thousand years. So who was he writing to? Well, he says in verse 2 that he's writing to God's elect. Uh, The word elect there means those who are specially selected. They're kind of a special class, those who God chose out of humanity for himself. We would say it's the church composed of true believers. Uh, He refers to them, secondly, as being strangers in the world. 
In other words, they're sojourning in a strange land. They're, they're foreigners to the place in which they're living. In other words, they are citizens of heaven more than they are citizens of earth. That, but then he says those who were scattered or dispersed throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, uh, basically this region that we would call modern-day Turkey. And he said of these people that they have been specially chosen. Again, the electos, uh, according to the foreknowledge of God. Those, Peter or Paul said in Romans 8, whom God foreknew, the same he did predestinate or pre-plan towards salvation. And that they have been those who are the recipients of the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit for obedience to Christ and the sprinkling of his blood. He goes on and, and says further on that these are those who have been given new birth, who have entered into a living hope, who have an inheritance in heaven that can never perish, spoil, or fade, and lastly, who have been shielded by God's power. So who in the world is he writing to? Well, probably the believers in those particular churches. I think the next slide is the map, is that right? I can't remember, yes. So what you see on this map is up in the far uh, top left-hand corner, Pontus, uh, Papalonia, uh, Bithynia, Galatia, Cappadocia, this whole region which was originally was part of the Roman Empire, uh, bordering up against what was the Parthian, previously called the Persian Empire. And basically, he, Peter is writing to those people in that particular area which we would call modern-day Turkey today. Um, we don't know what kind of connection Peter would have had with them other than he had apostolic authority. So that when he talks about where he's writing from, Peter identifies the location as being Babylon. Now some, many, have suggested that Babylon is kind of a figurative term, a, a symbol that he's actually talking about Rome, and that's where the assumption that Peter was imprisoned in Rome. But actually, the Babylon spoken here is referred to in a very literal sense. There's no symbolism implied. And it's very likely that Peter was actually in the real Babylon, the actual Babylon, because there was a large Jewish community in Babylon. In fact, it's kind of interesting, at least to me, demographic kind of uh, uh, story that when the Jews were carried away into captivity by the Babylonians after the destruction in 586 B.C., uh, they began to grow for the next 70 years and expand and prosper. God said he'd bless them. When the Babylonian Empire collapsed, the Persians became the new rulers of the world. They allowed the Jews to return and resettle in Judea, specifically to rebuild the temple there. But the thing is, from the, point, from the time they were taken to the Babylonian captivity up until the year uh, 2010, there have always been more Jews living outside of Israel than have actually lived within its borders. That just changed in 2010 with the population of Israel and Jews there growing enough. But there was, even in these times, there were more Jews living in Babylon than were actually living in Judea at the time that Peter's writing. So if Peter, who we're told it was an apostle, Paul said in Galatians 2, was apostle to the Jews, it makes all the sense in the world that he would have gone to Babylon and ministered there to the Jews regarding Jesus Christ as the Savior. 
Um, if you look at the next map, you get another little perspective is that the communication between, say, Babylonia, which you see in the, in the center, or the bottom center of the, the page, and that of these areas uh, up here to the north, uh, you see that red line. And what that was known as the Persian Royal Road, it took 90 days to walk from one end of that road to the others. But the Persians were the first to develop a postal system. We think we had the, in the Old West the, the, the Pony Express. The Persians had that long before. They had a, a circuit riders who could transmit the king's ordinances and edicts from one end to the other in seven days. So that this was the, the fastest distributing and moving of information the world to that time had even seen. So the fact that people traveled back and forth down this road was, was a common thing. And so it would have been easy for Peter or others to have done the same. And not just simply by taking the road, they could also sail down the Euphrates and the Tigris rivers. But uh, when was this, when was this uh, letter actually written? Well, there's a little bit of a timeline. If you go to the next slide, it kind of breaks it down a little bit to give you some perspective chronologically. The letter, we believe, was written sometime between 60 and 64 A.D. The time Nero was the emperor of Rome, but Nero hadn't become the raving lunatic yet that he would eventually become. And so uh, there was still relative freedom, although there was persecution on a regional or local basis throughout the Roman Empire against uh, Christians or any other group that didn't have a legal license to practice. And that's what Christians were. They were like people practicing without a legal license. They were literally called an illegal religion. And therefore, they were, uh, they were available for persecution and oftentimes were looked at as being kind of a malevolent element in the community. Um, so, but it was in 64 AD that they had the great fire of Rome. 13 of the 16 districts of Rome caught on fire. Three of them were completely destroyed. It was not long before rumor began to spread that Nero had started the fire. Historians still debate whether or not he was the guilty party. He wasn't in Rome at the time, but then necessarily, if you're going to burn the city, you might want to be gone. So you, we just don't know. Suetonius, a later historian, Roman historian, said that he actually started the fire. But Tacitus, who came earlier, says he didn't. It was just a very hot July summer, and a fire started, and it couldn't be stopped. Winds whipped it up, and it became uncontrollable. But Tacitus writes in his history, he says, to get rid of the report, the rumor that he had started the fire, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. They were hated for their abominations. Now, I've explained this before, but if you aren't, were here, I'll go over it again very briefly. One of the things that the Greek and Roman people felt about Christians is that they were atheists because they rejected the Roman pantheon, the Roman gods and the Greek gods. And they thought that because they weren't honoring the gods of Greece and Rome, therefore the gods brought judgment upon them. And so this fit very nicely with Nero's narrative 
this terrible fire has come because we have tolerated this uh, blasphemous group of people who have abominable practices. Christians, because they would uh, partake of the Lord's Supper, were, it was actually rumored that they actually drank blood and they ate flesh and they did all sorts of horrible things. And so as a consequence, they were uh, a, a disliked people but Rome tended to be pretty tolerant because it was a melting pot of literally hundreds of different nationalities. And there were hundreds, if not thousands, of different types of religions that were taking place there. But they began to zero in in particular because Christians were exclusive in their theology. They said there's only one God that we can worship and unlike all the other religious systems, which were willing to make a sacrifice to the emperor just to give him his due, kind of like paying the parking meter or paying the tax, most religions would go ahead and just, you know, drop a little grain on, on the altar and, and bow down to the emperor, and then everything was good. Christians refused to even do that. There's one story of a, 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 a Jew who was commanded to, to uh, uh, sacrifice to the emperor. And this, of course, led to basically mil tremendous conflicts between the Jews and the Romans. But he asked the rabbi the question, it, it, rather than when I'm called to bow down to the emperor's image, what if I just kneel down and tie my sandal? And it'll look like I'm bowing down and then I can go scot-free and not have to suffer the consequences. And apparently uh, the rabbi said, well, that, that doesn't work. God looks on your heart. He doesn't care about faking out the Romans. But the long and short of it was, this was the first and maybe one of the worst all-out persecutions against Christians. There would be 10 more persecutions, uh, what we would call official pogroms against Christians over the next 200 years. So that almost every Roman emperor at some point saw it as a necessity, sometimes as a political uh, outlet, to be able to focus the wrath, the frustration, the anger of the population against the Christians and to stop it from spreading. But we know that in 66 AD probably that both Peter and Paul were executed as being part of the ringleaders of this Christian sect. Uh, we know that Paul was beheaded uh, Peter was crucified. Tradition says he was crucified upside down and uh, uh, perished in Rome as well. But very possibly was arrested in Babylon and carried there to be sentenced and condemned. Nero was executed, or excuse me, was assassinated just a few years later. In 68 AD, uh, the Praetorian Guard uh, murdered him in one of the hall uh, passageways from the palace to, the, to uh, the Colosseum. And when he was in there, instead of being protected by the Praetorian Guards, he was stabbed to death. And uh, his last words were told is, the world has lost such a great artist. Um, he was a narcissistic sociopath, so I mean it's kind of consistent with a personality type. But essentially, his rule had been, become so egregious. The things he was doing, I mean, he actually made his horse a senator, you know, and he would sleep with the wives of senators, invite these people over to his, to his, his uh, palace, and then he would have uh, sexual relationships with the senator's wives just to humiliate them. Uh, his, his behavior just became completely so out of control that nobody mourned his passing. 
But the Jews took this as the opportunity to rebel against Rome. And so in 68 AD, when news reaches Palestine that the emperor has been murdered, assassinated, and now a civil war breaks out because there's three different contenders to be the next emperor, the Jews chose that moment to rebel against Rome, not knowing that two years later the city of Jerusalem would be completely destroyed by actually the man who would later on become emperor, Vespasian, and after him his son Titus, who was actually the destroyer of the city of Jerusalem, uh, became the next two Roman emperors uh, and their brother Domitian. So anyway, that's kind of the timeline and the flow of events here. But let's talk about the book itself. What is the book about? I refer to it as Basic Instructions on Christian Living. It is really probably one of the most helpful books in terms of sitting down with a young believer and instructing them in the faith. Uh, I was listening to Drew's message from last Sunday, and he talked about how some people are just ignorant. Their behavior isn't consistent with their Christian faith because they're just ignorant of what the Bible says and what God's will is. That's why probably the best thing to do with someone like that is saying, you know, you need to sit down and read 1 Peter. Because it goes through in such wonderful detail uh, in explaining how the Christian is called to live his or her life. In fact, I would go so far as to say I think a lot of inconsistent Christianity would get cleaned up really quickly if this was required reading uh, after somebody gave their life to Jesus Christ. There are essentially three things that he emphasizes in this letter. The first one, particularly in the light of persecution, is to stand fast or to stand firm in the face of suffering and persecution and hardship. Uh, in verse chapter 5, verse 9, for example, he says, standing firm in the faith because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing, undergoing the same kind of sufferings. He goes on in verse 12 saying, therefore, be strong, firm, and steadfast. And again, in, in, he says, I have written to you briefly encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. Again, in chapter 4, verse 1, he had said to him, therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude. And again, in verse 12 of chapter 4, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you. So Peter really does anchor the idea that suffering is part of the Christian life. And this is kind of, you'd think it'd be unnecessary to say it, but particularly in this day and age, there is a belief amongst many Christians that if you're in God's will, then your life is blessed. And if it's blessed, then you have no disease, you have no financial difficulties, you have no relationship conflicts. And Peter really kind of explodes that if you read it. And he just simply says, expect it. There's going to be suffering. Now, Jesus said essentially the same thing, didn't he? Say, he said in John, in this world, you will have troublesome times. But he says, don't be discouraged. I have overcome the world. So Jesus didn't say, I, have, I will take you out of it and therefore you won't have to deal with it. We don't come to Christ and get set into a separate reality called a pain-free zone. No, our victory is not in avoiding the suffering and hardship and difficulties of the world. It's in passing through them with faith, hope, and love. So that that becomes the distinctive, not the avoidance of difficulties, but how we respond. And so if you ever have a question, God, why are you allowing this to happen in my life? And his answer is, because you belong to me. 
because I have a calling on your life. I have a purpose and because I love you and I'm going to glorify myself in and through the things that I allow into your life. So this is the first thing that Peter says. The first thing is don't be moved because of hardships. Now again, if we look at the context of the people he's writing to, they're going through hardships. In fact, as I said before, this is something we've seen all through the scriptures, all through the book of Acts. The Christians suffered persecution, hardships, and ostracism, and financial deprivation, and so forth and so on. And he's saying, don't let that move you. Don't feel like there's something wrong with you because things have gotten difficult, because you're going through hardships. Secondly, he says, follow. Uh, not only stand fast, but follow Christ. He says in chapter 2, verse 21, Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Now, Charles Shelton wrote a book in the 19th century that became quite famous, and when I was a Christian, everybody was reading it, called In His Steps. And it was just taking this passage and applying it. How would Jesus respond? It's been modernized by WWJD. What would Jimmy, no, what would Jesus do? The idea that we look at situations saying, what is God's will? How would God have me to respond? Essentially, that's what Peter is saying. He's saying, you're going to go through suffering. You're going through the difficulty. How should you respond to it? Respond to it in the same manner in which Jesus responded to it. And as he says in chapter 4, verse 2, as a result, he does not live the rest of his earth life for human, evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. So that the way that I deal with the hardships of life is to seek to know what is it that God wants me to do when I'm dealing with this difficult situations in life. That is a spiritual and an intellectual discipline that we are called to develop. Where we sit back when things are difficult and say, God, what do you want me to do? How is it that you want me to respond? Rather than responding simply by our previous lifestyle training. And then last of all, he says we are to obey, to stand, to follow, to obey. And the word obey here literally means attentive hearkening. Attentive, we might say attentive paying attention. (laughs) Attentively paying attention to what what God is saying. That's what obedience is. It's, It's not just simply following a set of rules, but really thinking very strategically on how my life is to conform to what God wants. Because he said in the very beginning, in verse 1, or verse 2 of chapter 1, he says that you have been chosen for what? One of the things you're chosen for is obedience to Jesus Christ. You have been chosen to be obedient to Christ. It's, I remember years ago, I was sitting with a group of pastors, and uh, one of the guys was talking about the importance of vision for your ministry, and, and um, he was asking different people, you know, well, what's your vision for your ministry? And, you know, I've always been the one who kind of reigns on parades. And he comes to me and says, so what is your vision? And I said, well, really, I don't know that I have a vision. What I know is that God has more than enough vision, and I just need to find out what his vision is and obey it. In other words, how do you be a visionary follower of Jesus? You obey him. And if you obey him, you'll find yourself always in the center of what he wants. 
and that will be blessed by God. That will be fruitful. But yet today we're again this idea because we tend to try to copy the corporate world around us. We want to be visionary leaders. We want to be out there as if we're dreaming up some great strategy by which we're going to change the world. The reality is that I'm basically incompetent. Human nature is incompetent. When he says in 1 Corinthians 1 that man in his greatest wisdom is altogether foolishness in the eyes of God, who am I to suppose that I'm going to come up with this winning strategy? The truth of the matter is, God, I just need to hear your voice. I need to be an attentive listener so that I hear and I obey what you tell me to do. And if I do that, I will find myself planted in the soil where I will be the most fruitful and I'll bring glory to your name. So essentially, this becomes, I think, Peter's message to all believers, that if I'm to stand firm, it means that, I, you know, if, a plant, if my plants get up and run out of the ground, they uproot themselves and move, they're not going to be fruitful or effective and live very long. Someone once put it this way, bloom where you've been planted. Bloom where God has planted you and, and just be obedient to Him and what He's given you and try to respond and follow His will for your life and you will find that your, your service to God and your life upon earth will be successful and fruitful. Um, again, why did he write this letter? Well, um, as I said, there were both local regional persecutions that the churches were subject to. Um, initially, we know that these conflicts arose within Judaism. Uh, in other words, the, the high priests began to persecute the followers of Jesus because they were followers of Jesus rather than the high priest and because Jesus challenged their lifestyle and their behavior, not their authority or their position, but he did challenge the immorality and the dishonesty and the hypocrisy with which they lived. But this spread as the church spread. And we know, for example, in Acts 18.2, we're told that Claudius, who was the emperor in 49 BC, that he ordered all Jews to leave Rome. And we're told later on by the historian Suetonius that the reason was, as he says, as the Jews were making constant disturbances at the instigation of Crestus, he expelled them from Rome. Most historians think that Crestus is actually speaking of Christ that the controversy over Jesus within the Jewish community had become so intense that they were actually causing uh, riots amongst the Jews. And so as a result, Claudius just kicked all of the Jews out of Rome, which brought uh, uh, Aquila and Priscilla to Ephesus where they met Paul. But we've read about, read about the Acts when Paul was in, in, in Lystra and Ephesus, Philippi, Thessalonica, and even in Corinth. There were instigations over and over again. The Jews were always trying to get the civil authorities to punish the Christians for not submitting to their rules. But as I said before, Christianity was an illegal religion. And as time went on, it became more and more distinct, especially when Gentiles began to convert. And as a consequence, they became a particularly hated group of people, a subculture. And that's why Peter makes this statement in chapter 5, verse 8. He says, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And he says, resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. Well, it's probably, most likely, that it was these regional sufferings that 
Peter is addressing here in the very cities in which he mentioned and because of their refusal to worship the local and imperial deities. In verse 18, when Peter says this, he says, it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers. That actually is a reference to the idolatrous practices In other words, silver and gold images were worshipped. And Peter said, remember how empty that was? How unfulfilling, unsatisfying. This was what was passed you traditionally from father to son. He says, you've been redeemed from that. Again, in chapter 4, verse 3, he says, you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. Actually, all of those behaviors were often integrated into the worship of the various deities. Uh, They were very sensory-based religious experiences, uh, thriving on sensuality. And he says, they think it's strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation and they heap abuse on you. So the persecution he's speaking of here is not you know, being uh, crucified or murdered. It's being abused verbally. They're having abuse heaped upon them. They're, they're being shamed. They're being treated uh, disrespectfully. And oftentimes there were economic implications because most of the professions had a deity, a god they worshipped as being the patron god of their particular profession. And if you didn't worship that god, you were kicked out of the profession so that you would actually be unemployed and you would suffer financial hardships as a consequence. And this probably is the kinds of things that they were being uh, exposed to, expelled from their families, expelled from their professions, even expelled physically from their communities, and certainly expelled from any kind of social relationships so that people who once had previously been your friends now wouldn't even acknowledge you. We think of shunning as being some kind of a Christian practice, but actually it's been a practice that's been used by many people throughout the centuries to bring people into conformity. We many times have trouble understanding how intense the pressure was on these people to give in how intense the pressure was to kind of compromise. And even the writer of Hebrews warns about the tendency there of trying to find a kind of a middle ground where we don't have to, we can kind of go along. You know, things that I would say, how do I bend down and tie my sandal without actually bowing down to the idol? And the truth of the matter is, God knows my heart. And if I do that, it robs my life of the empowering of the Holy Spirit. So Peter is saying, if you're going to be a powerful witness You have to be true to God, regardless of what the consequences or costs are. And I might just add, just briefly, that I think that this is a concept that is sorely lacking within the church today. The idea that there can be some hardships and negative consequences of actually having taken a stand for Christ. We, we, we like to think that somehow there's a way of compromising, a, a middle ground where we don't have to compromise our faith and yet we don't have to create a controversy. Granted, there are some people who think that being obnoxious is the same as being a witness for Christ and, and I don't agree with that. 
But at the same time, if you're going to be obedient to God in any of your life, you're going to find that the devil is prowling around looking for people that he can devour. And he's going to throw everything he has at you to get you to yield. Every one of us, I think, in this room understands this dynamic. We, if you haven't been there, then you haven't been walking with him. The temptation is is to then remove ourselves and create an alternative reality. I call it cloistering. We want to find a cloister that we can live in, a group of people that will fortify us and protect us from that, that, uh, that world out there. And as a consequence, we disengage from the culture when basically we need to be like the barbarians. We need to invade the culture with our faith. We need to be front and forward and in the face of the society that we want to affect. And I think to some degree that part of the problem we see in America today is not that the Christians have been too vocal, but rather they've been too uninvolved. So that when we look at things, and here go, let me see. Sometimes I just see these landmines and I just want to step on them. So anyway, uh, let me just lay it out there. I think that to some degree, that's what we've done with Christian education. We've told people that if you're really a Christian, you're going to pull your kids out of the public school and you're going to put them into this private sector where they won't be exposed to those evil things. The problem with that is those kids tend to find those things there too. Believe me, I've had kids in Christian, grandkids in Christian schools, and they were being exposed to the same things kids were being exposed to in the public school. I hate to shadow your illusion. And I'm not saying that, that, that Christian schools are wrong. Please don't go that far with me. But what I am saying is the concept behind it that somehow we're going to insulate our children from being exposed to the ugly things in the world is not necessarily true. Sin has its way of finding its way into every area of life and every place in the world. What we need to be thinking more about is how can we step into the, the dark places and be light in the midst of darkness? And that's when I see when people do that, their lives begin to glow. They begin to really have a radiance to their life because they stand out as distinct and they are so clear in their understanding of what we're really dealing with and what they need to be concerned about that they're not sitting around worrying about who's going to win idol or the voice. What they are concerned with is how can these people escape the penalty of hell that is certainly awaiting them on the other side of life. And you begin to live your life for me. So let me step off the soapbox and get back to the message. Okay. Boy, I feel better I got that off my chest. <laughs> oh. Yes, anyway. So what is the key verse? Man, this was a hard one. Peter is so filled with so many amazing statements, but I had to land on one. I landed on chapter 2, verse 21, where Peter says, To this you were called. Because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. This is what you're called to. What is he referring to? Suffering. You're called to this. And, and anybody who has, says, I'm a Christian, but I've never suffered, I would want to go back and have your pedigree pa papers checked. I would want to have really a, uh, to go back and say, God, do I really know you? Because it's unavoidable. If you are a follower of Jesus, you're gonna, stuff's going to come at you. You're going to have to deal with stuff. You're going to deal with temptation. You're going to deal with slander. You're going to deal with accusation. You're, gonna, you're just going to be dealing with stuff because the enemy will not leave you alone. 
And I find that when people say to me, well, I just want the devil to leave me alone, then I say, then stop following Jesus because that's all he wants. Just stop following Jesus. Stop obeying him and he will leave you alone. <laughs> He'll leave you alone to your own destruction. But if you want to be alive, if you want to be vibrant in your life, if you want to really know what it means to live and to be exciting, then obey Jesus and you'll find that the devil will be all around you and, and coming at you in every direction. He will, as Peter, James, or excuse me, Paul said, he will be firing, shooting fiery darts at you left and right. And he says, this is to what we are called. If we're going to follow him, follow in his steps. So, brings me in my last six minutes to the outline of this letter. And I've broken it into, really, in my simple alliteration, into four S's. Um, first of all, we're called to be strangers. Secondly, we're called to be in submission. Thirdly, we're called to suffering. And fourthly, we are called to serving. What do I mean by that? Well, it's interesting that three times Peter refers to the, the recipients of his letters as being strangers in regards to this world. In fact, he, he, um, he says in verse 14, he says, as obedient children do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance, but just as he has called you who is holy, so be holy in all that you do, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. Live your lives as strangers. In fact, later on in, in verses 10 and 11, he says, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from the sinful desires which war against your soul. Now, I don't know if you've ever traveled to a foreign country, but when you get off the plane and you walk into the airport, it becomes immediately evident that this isn't Kansas anymore. You know, you have this Dorothy Toto moment when you realize this is different. Everything went from black and white into color now, and we have little munchkins going down the yellow brick road. It's a different world that you suddenly entered into. The signage is different. The language that you hear around you is different. Even the English that is spoken is with a distinct accent, if in fact they speak it at all. And when you leave the airport and you begin to encounter the culture, you realize that you are a stranger now in a strange land. And that is what's supposed to happen when we give our lives to Jesus. That we suddenly realize we are no longer part of this economy. We're no longer part of what's going on here, but there are things within us that do not feel comfortable blending in with what is there. Everything feels differently. That is a sign that God has done something in your life. Uh, <laughs> One of the things, Drew made the comment, we were having a conversation one time, and he made the comment to me, he says, you know, the idea of being lukewarm, he says, it's so interesting because what is lukewarm? It is simply allowing the environment to, to, to moderate the temperature. In other words, to be lukewarm means that the culture determines the temperature of your life instead of the other way around. Instead of us entering into the culture, we change the environment. It's kind of like these, we used to travel these little, little co co coils that we put in our coffee, our water, to heat it, to make coffee and tea. And you plug it into the water, the electricity would go into the coil, and the coil, because it had energy flowing through it, affected the temperature of the water around it and changed the temperature and made it hot. Essentially, that's what we're supposed to be like. We're plugged in to God. The Holy Spirit is flowing through us and we are touching the culture around it and changing that we're heating up the world around us. But if that's not happening, 
you're not plugged in. <laughs> Long and short of it. When the church no longer affects the culture in that way, it's because it's not plugged into the power of God. And that's where I come back to the church being vibrant and effective in our culture. Is it going to be vibrant because we've come up with a better plan? I, I'll confess to you, I flew to Dallas. I was Actually, they paid for me to come to this conference and it was all about reaching the millennial generation. And it was really fascinating stuff. A lot of data. I love data, so it really was interesting to me. But after eight hours of nonstop meetings, no breaks, eight hours of all these meetings, do you know how many times we prayed? None. Do you know how many times it was referenced, we need to pray? None. Do you know how many times it was talked about the power of the Holy Spirit working and moving in His church and changing lives? None. But it was all about statistics and data and hiring statistical engineers to analyze the profiles of your community and breaking it down and learning how to message to these particular groups the same way the political campaigns are doing. No power. I remember I walked away just like, We're, we're toast. <laughs> we may be able to get a crowd, but how many lives are we going to change? How many lives? Well, that's the whole point. That he's just simply saying, we have to begin to realize that we're not trying to make our way in this world. We're not trying to fit into the cultural norms or be accepted by the culture. We are here to make a difference but not because of ourselves. I am as inert as that coil is inert until it is plugged into the juice. And once it gets plugged in the juice and the power flows, then my life can begin to affect the world around me, but without it, I'm just cold steel. And there's no life in it. Well, that's why he goes on saying, how do we do this? Well, the whole thing is submit yourselves to the Lord. Submitting yourself to the Lord. And in that, you begin to submit yourself to the authorities. He talks about kings. He talks about governors. But more importantly, he says, by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. That we should live, he says, as servants of God, showing proper respect to everyone. And he goes on, slaves to their masters, wives to their husbands, husbands to their wives, and so forth and so on to live in harmony with one another, to be sympathetic, to love as brothers, to be compassionate, and to be humble. That's why in chapter 3, verse 15, he said, in your heart, set apart Christ as Lord and always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But to do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed because of their slander. But above all, love each other deeply. But above all, love each other deeply. Now he tells us, he goes on to say in chapter 4, you will, this will bring suffering into your life if you do this. In verse 12 he said, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial. You are suffering as though something strange were happening to you but rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when His glory is revealed. Do you know, in a way, it's almost like when things go really, really terribly long, wrong, to rejoice. You know why? 
because God is at work. God is at work. He's doing stuff that you and I don't even know. And he says the promise is God is going to magnify himself. Which brings us lastly to the fact that we are called to serve. And he starts off by in chapter 5 by talking to the leadership. He says, to the elders among you I appeal as a fellow elder. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers, not because you must, but because you are willing as God wants you to be, not greedy for money, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrust you, but being examples to the flock. Young men, he goes on to say, in the same way, be submissive to those who are older, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. And in the end, he says in verse 7, cast all of your anxiety, all your stress, your fear, your worry, your concerns about everything in your life because he cares for you. Cast it on him. And he says, the promise is the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a little while, you know, 60, 70, 80 years, after you've suffered a little while, in the eyes of eternity, it's just a moment, and if you've suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast? Father God, I pray that you would help us to have ears to hear so that we might have eyes that could see the proof and the evidence of what your word says. But remind us, Lord, that it's only as we follow you obediently that we'll ever have the opportunity to witness the truth of what you've declared in your word. Give us that courage, that confidence, that assurance that, Lord, even in the face of sufferings, we would maybe raise trembling hands and even weeping eyes, but we would lift them up to you and praise you that you found us worthy to suffer for your sake. That, God, we might give glory to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.